Let us read from the Word of God today. What a privilege it is to read from God's Word. I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 4. We'll be beginning at the chapter, going on to verse 11. Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 1. This is the word of God. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him, to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Well, good morning, church. I am so glad to see all of you today and to be able to spend time worshiping the Lord Jesus together and singing praises to his name. If you have your Bible, just keep your fingers there uh, because we are going to be going back and forth referring to the 11 verses of this passage as we talk about our text uh, for today. You know, it was uh, C.S. Lewis, who's the famous author of the Chronicles of Narnia, a well-known book in the English-speaking world and also outside of it, who said that there are two and equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall into about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy amount of interest in them. Now, For most of us who live here in North America or have grown up here or know very little about the world outside, many of us here are biased against the supernatural. North Americans don't think very much, you know, about this idea of angels, demons, or that there is a world that is beyond the material world that we think and we see. And I think many are actually uh, fall into that trap that Lewis talks about, this sort of disbelief that there is anything more to what meets the eye and they functionally believe in demonic lies that saturate our culture and are killed, actually, as a result of it. See, because we pride ourselves uh, in being scientific and modern people, we look at stories like this, this account of Jesus and facing off with the devil and Satan, and think, this can't possibly be true. And in fact, if the Bible is anything, it must be a book that's simply for children or a bunch of fairy tales, and not for a modern people who are intellectual. Now, some reading this text have argued, you know, in our world, that, of course, because the supernatural is not real, this text that we're reading here must be fictional, must be metaphorical of some sort, and if there was any battle that took place, it was, must have been a battle in the mind. What this is, they say, is a Jewish reimagining, actually, of Israel's historical trial in the life of Jesus, just using him as a character. So it never really did happen, but it's all up there in Jesus' head. And he tells this story, you know, kind of like a parable to tell us what to do. You know, as much as people like to argue for this, I, in our culture, I think that this is wrong, actually, for a number of reasons, and that there really was a battle between Jesus and the devil himself. There's three reasons I would give. Firstly, that 
This story is found in at least three of the four Gospels, and the Gospels are eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Now, I know that Mark's Gospel is very short when it speaks about this particular temptation, but Luke's account of this is also about the same length as Matthew's is. The interesting thing about Luke, actually, is that when you read Luke's Gospel, the preface of Luke's Gospel, how he starts it off is he says that what he is doing for people is trying to give a historical account of the facts of what actually happened in Jesus' life. Now, Luke is a very careful historian, relying on stories and other things that he has heard, and not an individual who is prone to writing down myths. So what we should understand from this is that when Luke wrote down this story, he wasn't making up something that he thought was metaphorical, but he was writing down something that he really honestly believed occurred in Jesus' life and was reiterated by the gospel writer Matthew. The second reason is that when you read the Gospels and also stories of the ancient world, you do find the presence of the demonic. In fact, the Gospels are filled with encounters of Jesus and demons. People are actually shocked, actually, by Jesus because he demonstrates a power over demons that nobody else has ever been able to exercise in human history. They submit to his name. Now, although our culture does not believe in demons or things uh, in a spirit world. You go outside North America and that you will find amongst Asian cultures, African cultures, Middle Eastern cultures, and many other parts of the world that belief in demons and spirits in the world is just assumed. And they look at North Americans and they're flabbergasted that with all of our education and the beautiful things that we do, that we don't understand this very basic thing, that there is more to the world than simply what you see. And they accuse us of being hedonistic and materialistic, which, unfortunately, we are. And in many occasions, prideful as well, I think. We should be very careful that just we not let our experiences and our views of our culture dictate what needs to be true for all other cultures and people's experiences in the world. The third thing about this is that this story is about Jesus being alone in the wilderness. And if Jesus truly was alone, it means that there was only one source for this story. It actually must have come from Jesus himself because nobody else was there to witness it. Satan certainly didn't write an account for publication, which Luke then drew off of. Absolutely not. Now, we know that in Jesus' ministry, when you look at the gospel records, that Jesus very clearly, at times, taught in parables. But at other times, he did not. And he told true stories, you know, or gave true examples for life. In this particular case, there is nothing in this account to indicate that Jesus was telling a parable for his own spiritual biography or spiritualizing something that went on inside of his head. I think this is Jesus actually here pulling back the curtains on his very heart and bearing to us what it was like to be the son of God himself and yet to struggle through the temptations and sufferings that all human beings, you and I, experience on daily basis. This is the son of God going through what is common to human beings, exposing his struggle, exposing how he had to trust in God to give people like you and me hope in our daily struggles. Jesus can help us because he suffered exactly like one of us without using his divine power that we don't have, so that he could give us hope. As we walk through this text today, it's my hope that as we look at this account here in Matthew, that God would show us through the three tests that Jesus goes through. I'm going to call them the test of care, the test of control, and the test of character. I want us to see how through these three tests and Jesus' response to them, and how he had victory, how this is actually hope for us in our lives that we too also will be able to have victory over our own flesh, over the pressures of this world, and over the devil and the demons themselves who would like to deceive us and destroy us. So before we get started, let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you, God, for your precious word that gives us truth for life. And I ask you, God, to help us, God, to see through the work of the Son of God here what hope we might have as frail, weak human beings who are dependent on God for our very lives to know how to live. God, I've written words here, but these words are useless and will have no effect unless your Holy Spirit moves, O oh God, and brings conviction to our hearts. So I ask, God, being just an ordinary person, O oh God, that Jesus died for 
that you would do what I could never do, O God, and stir in the hearts of people, O God, the truth of your own word. Help us to love you, O God, and to find hope in our Savior and his work. Open our eyes, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. With your Bible open, let us begin by rereading verses 1 to 4. And we'll work through this one section at a time. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, this scene takes place after Jesus' baptism and his inauguration to ministry, and the Spirit of God that came on him like a dove is the same Spirit that we read drives him out into the wilderness to undergo a period of testing for 40 days, one day for every single year that the children of Israel spent wandering in the desert. In other words, Jesus is retracing the footsteps of ethnic Israel here, being the true son that uh, uh, the being the true son, the true Israel, to succeed where Israel failed in the desert. Now, Jesus' baptism and his work does not go unnoticed by Satan, who obviously sees what is happening here. And just as he did to the people of Israel, he tries here to drive a wedge between the Son of God and the Father who is in heaven by tempting him to sin. Now, the first test, which I call here the test of care, that Jesus faces here is the real genuine danger that all human beings face when they're deprived of their basic needs. In other words, this is a test of care, a test of whether or not Jesus will actually survive as he faces the very real possibility of starvation. Now, as rich people here in North America who have an abundant supply of food and grocery stores which are just teeming with stuff to eat, we don't understand hunger of course, unless you come from another country in which you've experienced real hunger, we don't understand hunger here. Now, I've worked with teenagers for a number of years, and I remember once trying to teach teenagers to fast and to pray. And what I did for them is I forced them to skip a meal, no lunch, for the day. And the results were fascinating because a number of them, of the boys especially, slumped over and they began moaning as if they were going to die. <laughs> and I was really awed to observe this, and I couldn't understand why. And then I realized later, as I continued on in youth ministry, that some of these boys were capable of eating 12 slices of pizza in a single sitting on their own and still look for more. So I understand why for them, skipping a meal and fasting for a single you know, lunchtime opportunity was tantamount to death for them. But the truth of the matter is, I am certain, though they felt like dying, that none of those boys were in any real danger of death, and I was not a negligent pastor by asking them to skip a meal. In fact, if you were to skip an entire week's worth of meals, and some of you guys have actually done this, you will know that you will survive. You will lose weight. I think your spiritual life will improve if you actually focus on God, you know, and spend time sitting and in the presence of the Father. My point is this. This this fast of Jesus for 40 days goes far beyond what a three-day or a seven-day fast was, and it was no joke. In fact, there was an article published in the British Medical Journal in 1997 that talked about how long human beings can go on hunger strikes, and they put it at about sort of 40-ish days when you're actually in danger of dying. So the point here is that 40 days being about the limit for what human beings can do without food means that Jesus would have exhibited many of the symptoms that people who fast for 40 days would have experienced. Jesus, in his human form here, taking on flesh, would have been incredibly weak. He would have been dizzy. He would probably have been suffering from low blood pressure as well, probably so weak that he would have had difficulty even being able to stand, which explains why in the text that it seems that Satan has to transport him from place to place, not because Satan is powerful or Jesus needs a taxi, but he probably just couldn't stand at this point. He was in very real danger being a human being who experienced sleep deprivation, hunger, exhaustion in all the same ways that you and I do. But despite the real danger that Jesus was in, he doesn't take matters into our own hands. But what he does instead is against Satan's temptation, he quotes specifically from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. 
in response. Now, if you know Deuteronomy chapter 8, you will know that it's the account of Moses talking to the Israelites and reminding them about how God brought them into the desert, not to destroy them, but actually to teach them a very important lesson, that the reason they lived was not because they could work with their hands and make bread to eat, but ultimately because it was their Father in heaven who provided them the ability to eat every single day. And God gave them a very strong object lesson, an illustration that they would hold for the rest of their lives, and that was for every day they lived in that desert where they could grow no food to eat, God supplied to them miraculous food from heaven called manna that would appear every single morning on the ground like dew, fine flaked little things that they could take, grind up together, and turn into bread that they would sustain them for their day. Forty years and not a single day went by in which the children of Israel, who lived in an inhospitable desert, were went unfed. Always they survived because of God's promises. See, a million people ate in the desert and learned a lesson. And that was that man does not live by bread alone. Yes, you do eat bread, but you ultimately don't live by bread alone, but you live because of the promises of God. Because God has promised to take care of His children, therefore you will eat. Now the question for us here as we look at our text is, if Jesus had the divine power to turn stones into bread to satisfy a very real need like hunger, the question is why would it have been wrong or sinful for him to do so? And I think the answer to that question is because God's will for him was to learn to be the exemplary, humble, suffering servant who trusted, just as Israel was supposed to do, holy in his father's provision for his very life and not to turn to exercising his divinity to make his trials easy. He was to suffer and to experience everything that human beings like you and me were to experience. You know, the devil's words, if you are the son of God, really sound like the same taunt that Jesus hears at the end of his ministry when the crowds are looking at him on the cross and saying to him, if you're the son of God, you're the son of God? Well, then come down from the cross and save yourself. You said that you could destroy the temple and rebuild it. Son of God, if you really are that, come down right now and prove it to us. You know, these are the words of a taunt. They are a challenge. And the question is, does Jesus have the power to save himself? And the answer we know from scriptures is absolutely he does. In fact, just prior to his crucifixion, as he's getting taken away, Jesus explains in Matthew chapter 26, don't you know that I could ask my father, say one word, and he would send immediately 12 legions of angels, thousands of these light warriors, to my aid. And yet he chooses in that moment on the cross when he is taunted not to do so. You see, if angels had rescued Jesus from the cross and he had blown his top, he would have been saved, but the rest of us would have been doomed. You know, we're so glad that Jesus Christ chose to sacrifice himself so that you and I could be freed from our sins and ultimately find life in him. See, Jesus trusted that his Father's will for him to die on the cross to save the world was a plan that he was actually going to fulfill and that there was no way the Father in heaven would leave his son to die in the desert without filling his purpose to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so despite his own flesh screaming at him, his own body giving out, and the devil himself trying to drive him to use his powers to relieve his hunger, the Son of God answers instead with Scripture and turns him down. You know, this has great applications for us as Christians because I think we face this in our lives every day, this same sort of trouble. You might be sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, God, I have cancer. And young kids, if I die, who is going to take care of them? I lost my job. How am I going to pay my rent this month? I'm going to get kicked out from the place that I'm living. Where am I going to be? Will you take care of me? Or some of you are mothers here. I watched my own wife nurse our babies, every single one of them. And you say, God, I have not slept in years through the night. How do I face another day? You know, right? Some of you have lost spouses as well, and you're heartbroken. You feel the same way. Like, how do I carry on in life? These are real questions. 
And the answer to that question, the truth is that you actually can't on your own. You can't because your own strength is not sufficient for it. But the truth is His grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus, when He was faced with these temptations, the same problems that you and I face every day, didn't look inwards and say, I believe in myself, I am God, I can do this. Instead, He turned to His Father and said, I trust wholly in my Father's purposes for me. He will take care of me. Why? Because ultimately, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word, he said, that comes from the mouth of God. Even the Son of God himself said, I trust in the promises of God. See, Jesus understood this. Do you know why you're fed every single day? Do you understand why farms grow on food? Uh, why food grows on farms? Farms shouldn't grow on food. That would be terrible. But why, why food grows on farms every single day? Why the Canadian prairies, the very breadbasket of Canada, produces food for us to eat? Why is that? Is it because we're genius farmers? I mean, we're good at farming, but that's not ultimately why we eat. It's because, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You know why you're alive every single day? It's because the Lord God allows your heart to beat. It's not because you live in Vancouver and you have like this vegan diet and you practice yoga every day and you are into essential oils. That's not actually what's keeping you alive. It's good stuff, but it's not what's ultimately keeping you alive. You know, the demonic lie in our culture here is that you're actually self-made. You know, that you are what you, you can be anything that you want to be. You are your own person. Life is what you make it to be. But the truth is, if you even to dig deeper, even in our own culture, that's inconsistent. Most of us who have grown up successful is because we've had parents who cared for us, didn't do drugs, led us, you know, into education, punished us when we chose, chose a children's life of crime, stealing candies or little things, because it might be cute you know, or funny a little and a disciplinary action for a child when they're young because all they really want is to have Lego. That's not cute when an adult grows up instead of stealing Lego, they steal gold bricks from a bank, right? You're so blessed to have parents and people in your lives who told you and taught you to choose what is good. You aren't your own person. You owe your life to the mother who gave birth to you and to those who helped you make wise choices. That's why you're here. So even in our own culture, we understand you're not truly self-made. Nobody's truly self-made. And the Bible goes farther than that to say, you're not only not self-made, you're an absolutely dependent creature, dependent on the Creator who made you and gave you life. It's Him who allows you to live. And every single day that goes by, as Christians, the way that we are to face our struggles and temptations is to turn to this God who promises to take care of us. You know, do you realize how difficult it was for Jesus Christ to undergo the temptations that he did? You think it's hard for you to go through temptation and to go through the struggles in your life. Think about it. He was God. And he could have solved any of his temptations or his problems with a snap of his fingers. You know, I remember watching a clip of men, fascinating thing, uh, going into a hospital to, uh, to uh, try a pregnancy, uh, a labor and delivery simulator. So they stick electrodes, you know, on your chest or whatever, you know, and they're supposed to experience the pain of childbirth. Now, I'm a dad of three, and I bear witness, living witness to the fact that childbirth without medication is absolutely unbelievably painful, and I would never want to go through it myself. So women are very, very tough. The funny part was that within minutes of this hospital experiment, as they cranked up the machine to half power, all the guys ended up screaming for the experiment to stop. You know what I mean? Five minutes, you know, in the ring and they're done. You know, and, and I looked at that and I laughed to myself. I thought that in this area, it really is proof that women are tougher than men. You know, but I thought about it. You know, how many moms, if you were giving birth and you had the opportunity, a nurse stuck a little trigger into your hand and said, just, just push this button. If the pain gets too big, push this button and medicine will kick in and, and the whole delivery will be smooth and absolutely easy. 
I think if you were that mom and you had such a thing, very few would actually say, no, I'm going to go through this all the way. I want to experience the full pain. I think many, if you had that option, like those men did, to press a button and stop the thing, you would take it. You would take it because the pain is absolutely unbearable. And the only reason that I think many moms finish the job is not only because moms are awesome, but because uh, they have no choice. Once birthing starts, you can't tell the baby, let's try again tomorrow. Today's not a good day to do this. You can't. You, you have to go through the trial, right? See, the thing is, if you have a button to push, and you push that button, you never know the full experience of temptation, how difficult things can actually be. You understand that Jesus had access to the button? He could have pushed it at any time. Can you imagine the amount of willpower and trust that he had in his father? to not push the button and to satisfy his own needs, even though he was in the very real danger of dying. Why does Jesus refuse to turn stones into bread? The answer is to learn the example, to learn the lesson from Deuteronomy chapter 8.3 that Israel really didn't get, and that is that human beings, all people are to live by the promises of God and that the rock-solid promises of God will always come through and be true. You know, this is the struggle I know for some of you who are here, right? Like you've had maybe an injury that's left you unable to think. Maybe you have tendonitis now in your hand and it's very difficult to hold a hammer and to do your trade. Some of you, you know, I mean, you have macular degeneration in your eyes and you need a computer to work and you can barely work because you can barely see the screen. You're in re- it's scary to think of these things and you think, how am I going to take care of myself? God, will you take care of me? That's a real question to ask. You know, all this to say is that if you think you're alone, think again. The Son of God fought on exactly the same terms that you did. Don't fight by denying your weakness or looking inside and saying, believe in yourself. Fight as Jesus did and say, it is written, it is written, it is written. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is so hard, brothers and sisters, to believe every day, you know, as Christians. The battle for Christians is not just to read the Bible. It's actually to believe it, to believe it. I wrestle with this every day in my own life as well. Can I believe in the promises of God that he'll take care of me? I have moments when I have my doubts as well, despite all the good things that God has done for me in the past. When I was down to my last dollar, God came through for me, and yet I still struggle with it. God sustained his son, and he will sustain you. I put this in your outline, number one. We live by God's promises, not man-made prosperity. That's our hope in life. You know, that's the first temptation, the test that Jesus faced, this test of care. Will God actually take care of you? There's another test that he faced, number two here. Read with me verses 5 to 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You know, I I, I liken this test, this number two, to be the test of control. And this test that Jesus faces is a really crafty one. I don't know how many of you have ever thought of this, but do you know that Satan actually knows more Bible verses than probably all of you and and all of us in this room put together. He's had thousands of years to learn it. But the crazy part is that his demonic knowledge of the Bible does not lead him to worship God, but actually to hate God. And he uses the Bible, twisting the scriptures, to actually destroy people with it. It's really twisted. In fact, here at Satan, when he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 to 12, you don't see him thumbing through a Bible looking, where's that verse that I want to use against Jesus? He just knows it. And he quotes it word for word perfectly from the Old Testament. Now, the context of Psalm 91 is that the psalmist here is putting his trust in God's promise basically to deliver him through some sort of potential disaster, whether that's war, pestilence, famine, disease, or persecution, something of that sort. And the question here we have to ask is, if that's God's promise for a psalmist, that God truly delivers his own, why would it be wrong for Jesus to jump off the temple? Would God not deliver on his promise to rescue him? 
You know what the problem with this actually is? Do you know what's wrong with this? The problem here is that the biblical promise in the book of Psalms that Satan twists and takes out of context is actually set in the context of a mutual loving relationship, not a one-sided and coercive relationship. See, what the devil is asking Jesus to do here is to deliberately create a situation in which his father God will be obliged to act and to save his life. In other words, to exert control over God and to say, yes, God, I know your purposes, but guess what? My will be done right now, not yours. And this is what happens when human beings force God or try to manipulate God into doing things for them. You know, as one commentator put it, doing so, throwing himself from the temple, would have made, is, is the desire basically for man, that man may become the Lord of God and compel God to act through the power of his faith. In other words, this is not the kind of behavior that we expect to see in loving and mutually beneficial relationships, but actually in dysfunctional ones. You know, I remember, I remember reading an article once that answered the question, how do I prove my love to someone? And the article basically said that if someone demands that you have to prove your love to them by forcing you to make some sort of sacrifices for them, that person actually doesn't love you. In fact, what that person wants is actually to control you and to manipulate you instead. Imagine this. Imagine an engaged couple, you know, at the zoo. You know the way that engaged couples are. They like to hear the sweet things from each other. And the girl looks at the guy and asks him, do you really love me? And any good fiancé would say, I do. And I would do absolutely anything for you. Now, imagine the girl says, that is so sweet. Now prove it to me. And then she throws herself over the fence into the African lion exhibit and screams at him, save me! Now, I would imagine that if he really did love her, he'd probably be shocked by that, but he probably would jump in after her, like, what are you doing? And grab her, push her up over the fence and toss her out, and the guy would probably get mauled by a lion and, you know, bloody, and maybe he makes it out alive by sprinting over the fence and punching the lion in the nose. I don't know what he does. But if he gets out alive, the girl looks at him and says, now I know that you really do love me, and hugs him. What would you think if you saw that? Would you look at that couple and say, that's so sweet. That's, that's, that's really going to be a marriage that's going to last for the next 30 or 40 years. That's, I've never seen such love before. N no, you wouldn't. Absolutely not. Actually, you should be horrified. And the reason you should be horrified is because a little stunt like that doesn't demonstrate true love at all. It doesn't demonstrate a true, loving, mutual relationship, but it actually shows a manipulative, one-sided, and narcissistic one in which one person is actually an insecure psychopath. See, why wouldn't Jesus throw himself from the top of the temple? For the same reason. Because he loved his father. And he would do nothing of that sort to manipulate him or drive him to do things that in his favor alone. See, true love does not demand proof of that love by creating dangerous situations that will force another person to sacrifice. Only manipulative narcissists do that. See, true love doesn't demand sacrifice, but rather true love gives it instead. This is why Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, and says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. For people who love God, that's not something that they do. You know, this incident that Jesus is referring to is the incident in which the Israelites have been led out into the desert, and they're grumbling because they don't have water, and they accuse God, saying, you brought us out here into the desert to kill us. And this is absolutely ridiculous, given that just a few weeks prior, God had brought them out of Egypt through the Exodus, parted the Red Sea for them, and done them all this good. And you look at that and you say, God absolutely loved them. Why would they treat God this way? And the answer is because though God loved them, they did not love God. And they saw God not as a lover, but as an individual, a genie in a lamp, to use to get whatever they wanted. And I think this is the human problem that all of us face, Christians or non-Christians alike. You know, when we demand that God do something for us, God, you don't love me unless you do this. God, you don't love me unless... What you're actually saying and what you're declaring is that you have a relationship with God. Absolutely you do. You talk to Him, 
But guess what? Your relationship with God is not one built on mutual love. The relationship you have with God is one-sided, narcissistic. It's a relationship in which you believe you are the master and that God is the slave. You know, I'll give the example of a Pentecostal pastor named Jamie Coots from Kentucky who regularly preached while actually holding a rattlesnake in his hand. They were called the snake church because he believed that Mark chapter 16, verse 18 promised him divine protection from things like snakes and other poisons and other stuff. And one day, actually while he was preaching, he was bitten by the rattlesnake that he was uh, holding. He refused medical treatment, saying that it was against his faith, and he actually died as a result of it. Now, this is a stupid example, but a prime example of people testing God. You should never do this. Now, can God defend people from snakes? Yes, he can. You read the book of Acts, Acts 28. Paul is on a missionary journey, and as he's doing evangelism, sharing the gospel, he gets bitten by a snake, and the locals watch him, thinking that he's going to die, but God miraculously intervenes. The poison doesn't take effect. The people are astounded, and they turn to Jesus Christ, and they believe in Paul's God who does these sort of miracles. Now, what's the difference here? I think the difference here is that Paul didn't go to the mission field holding a rattlesnake. You know, He went to the mission field, and in the course of doing his faithful ministry, out of love for his Savior, he was bitten by a snake, and the promises of Psalm 91 took effect for him, and God defended his very life with his angels. See, Paul didn't go looking for trouble. Rather, he was preaching the gospel and living by faith, and God took care of him and supernaturally defended him. See, there's, there's a difference. There's a difference in the relationship. The type of relationship that Paul had with God is the kind that God wants us to have with him. You know, friends, let me ask you, what's your relationship with God like? What's your relationship with other people like? Is it one of mutual love and respect? Or are the relationships you have in your life manipulative? You use other people or you use circumstances in life to make them do what you want. You hang love over them or a relationship or the things that you know they really, really want to try to get them to do the things that you want them to do. That's selfish. It's unhealthy and it's ungodly. And the same thing applies to our work with God. You know, perhaps you're in a season of life here today and you're wondering, God, did you bring me into the desert to destroy me? Because life is just so difficult right now. See, if that's you, let me tell you something. That the Bible is very clear, and this will never change, that God actually does love you. And that he's already proven his love to you and doesn't need to prove it again. He already gave you the miracle of new birth and took away your sin, throwing it away as far as the east is from the west. He See, God demonstrated his love to the Israelites by pulling them out of slavery in Egypt. And for us as Christians, God also demonstrated his love to us by sending Jesus to die on the cross. He pulled us out of slavery to sin and death through a far greater exodus than the exodus of Egypt. He made us his very own children, and he offers us, just as he offered to the Israelites, a life in a promised land. Israel's promised land was a land flowing with milk and honey, but it was still a land that could be attacked. God offers to us as Christians a promised land that will never be attacked, the gates of the New Jerusalem will never be closed. You and I will drink from the crystal clear waters of the river of life and eat every day from the tree of life, spending unhurried time with all the saints from all eternity around the table of our king together. That's what he promises us. You think that the promise and what God did to the Israelites is good? Think again about what God has already done for Christians and what he offers them. The proof of God's love to you is the cross. Because it's the cross that purchased you all of those things and paid your unpayable debt and gives you a future that you could never possibly hope to imagine for. You know, I put this in your outline if you're writing. Number two, we live under God's reign, not man-made rules. We are not self-made people who can live according to however we want. We must live under God's reign, despite what our culture says. God makes the rules, not us. Brothers and sisters, if you're ever tempted to think that God does not love you, I would encourage you to fight just as Jesus did. 
Say, I will not put the Lord my God to the test. I will remember what he has done for me. I will say, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his love, his love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. I will say, it is written, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is a promise I can take to the bank. See, this is how Jesus fought. It is written, it is written, it is written. And he offers this example to you. And from his very own life, in his battle with Satan, to help you in your daily battle to know that God not only loves you, but that his promises can be trusted. Now, this was a monumental victory for Jesus, but there was still one more temptation, one more trial that Je Satan wanted to put him through. Look at verses 8 to 11. <clears throat> Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You know, I call the last trial here, I think, the test of character. So the test of care, the test of control, and the last one, the test of character. You know, Jesus would have... Um, known from reading the book of Isaiah and also hearing John say that he was the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world, that his purpose was to die on the cross for human sins. That was his job. The cross was the road that the Father had laid out for him in order to receive an inheritance of the nations, to rule over them as king forever. But here what the devil does is that he offers a shortcut to that right that he has to be ruler over the whole world. He says, bow to me, and all of it I'll give to you, Jesus. Now, there's some debate as to whether or not this was a genuine offer from Satan. I think in some sense it actually was. You know, if you read 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, it says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John 14, verse 30 says that um, Jesus calls Satan actually the ruler of this world. So what it's saying here is not that Jesus and Satan have a co-rulership over the universe, but really... In one sense, Satan does have a type of rulership over the sinful, tainted world that exists because he has temptations and words that he gives, deceptions that appeal to the sin-corrupted hearts of individuals who live amongst us. And in that sense, he does have a level of authority and rulership over the evilness of people's hearts. What, Jesus, what Satan is basically saying here is that, take my road, Jesus, it's way easier I have all these people in the palm of my hand. All you have to do is bow down to me. Skip the cross. It's not wrong for you to want to rule over the kingdom. Why do you got to go about it this way? Forget the cross. Just, just, just bow down to me and you can have it all. You know what this teaches us here? I think it teaches us this. Sometimes when Satan can't kill your soul by convincing you to leave the Christian faith, he actually goes about trying to kill you in a different way. That's not by convincing you to leave, but by convincing you to compromise your Christian faith. Both parodes actually lead to death. See, it's not wrong as a Christian to want things like a stable job, to be healthy, to have a family, to be married even, or to have a lover. These are all good things. But however, we are not permitted to compromise our Christian character by doing things contrary to God's word to get these things. In other words, we as Christians can marry, but we are not permitted to marry non-Christians. Christians can have jobs, well-paying jobs, but we are not permitted to take jobs that will cause us to compromise our character to do things that are immoral or illegal. Christians cannot lie when we're faced with persecution. Now, I'm not a Christian. When some extremist puts a gun to your head and says, if you're a follower of Jesus, I will kill you. We are not permitted to lie. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. See, for us as Christians, the ends never justify the means. And just as Jesus cannot accept his rulership over the world by compromising his character and worshiping Satan rather than his Father God, we as, Satans, we as Christians are never allowed to compromise our Christian character by turning to satanic, immoral or illegal things in order to get something that is good. You know, there's a story or a legend that's told about the great blues musician named Robert Johnson from the early 1900s. And as the story goes, he was a young man who was actually a very mediocre blues musician. And one day he actually packed up and left town. And when he came back, 
They say that he possessed an extraordinary ability to play the guitar. He became a guitar master. Later, I mean, there was a story that goes about how he came by his powers, and it was that basically that Robert Johnson so desired actually to be the greatest blues musician of his era that one night he actually took his guitar to a crossroads, and there he met a large man who was the devil uh, who struck a deal with him. He would offer his soul to him in exchange for the ability to be the greatest blues musician of his era. Now, in a few short years, Robert Johnson actually did just that. He had two years only of recording, and he made history. And what's fascinating is that Robert Johnson's last recorded song before he died at the age of 27 was a song entitled, Me and the Devil. And part of the lyrics of his last song read like this. Early this morning when you knocked upon my door, and I say, hello, Satan, I believe it's time to go. Me and the devil walking side by side. Me and the devil walking side by side. You may bury my body down by the highway side so my old evil spirit can greyhound bust that ride. You know, Robert Johnson is regarded, you know, in the, in the musical world, one of the greatest musicians in history. But the question is, is there perhaps truth to that legend about how he came by his miraculous powers at such a young age and died so young? Could it be true that perhaps the devil made a bargain with this young man and made him a musical genius in exchange for serving him? Now, this is not to say that Robert Johnson was not already a condemned sinner in the eyes of God and that somehow only selling his soul you know, sent him to, to hell. No, all of us, we understand that the Bible says all of us are sinners doomed you know, I mean, to suffer the wrath of God for our sins. But I think what this story is basically saying is that he made a specific bargain to gain a special power with Satan in exchange perhaps for a shorter life or a disease or something like that. Basically, a bargain with the devil for exceptional power. Now, in North America, you know, Satan often doesn't work this overtly, but for those of us from other cultures, you understand exactly how this works, right? You know about witch doctors, warlocks, uh, temple mediums and all these spiritists, actually, who possess an incredible amount of power because of bargains they have made with the spirit or the demonic world. You know, I think that Satan often doesn't do this in our world because people are already dead, dying under the illusion that they are their own gods and that they are their own people and that God doesn't exist and they are already given over to money, sex, and power. Why does Satan need to spend an ounce of his time trying to kill people who are already dead? Move on. Use your demons somewhere else. See, it's not wrong to have money, wealth, or musical skill, all these things, but we cannot compromise. This is why Jesus says in Matthew, Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall worship the Lord your God only, and him only will you serve. You know, I put in your outline this, number three, we live to imitate Christ, not man-made culture. You know, friends, I think it's a satanic lie in our culture to think that the type of character that we should have is up to us to choose. God has a standard. It's not the Chinese standard for what is a good person. It's not the Canadian standard for what's a good person. It's not the Middle Eastern standard for what is a good person and the character that you have. You look at all those different cultures and they all have a different standard for what it means to be a good person and what a good person should do and who's the type of person that should go to heaven. You look at all those cultures together and you say, who's right? How do you know you're actually a good person? Maybe in North America you're a good one, but compared to another culture, are you? Here's the truth. God has a standard that is timeless. And he says that all of you are in trouble. Nobody is good. Nobody has the character to stand in his presence except one, Jesus Christ. And through his death on the cross, he offers you his very own character, his very own life, and the forgiveness of your sins so that you might stand before him, clothed not in your own good deeds and righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus. You know, Satan here played his best card against Jesus. You know, this is no holds bar and he failed. The Son of God will not compromise and the devil runs and he flees. And it's only then, when all of his trials are complete, that the angelic angels, the angels show up to help him and minister to him and satisfy his needs. You know, friends, the truth of this story is that Jesus went through all of this as the true son the son who succeeded where the old Israel failed, to give people like you and I great hope as we look at the trials of life, wondering whether God will take care of us, wondering whether we need to be in control of our lives, wondering whether or not we can compromise our character to make it in this world. Jesus comes in here to answer all of those questions for us. See, the battle cry of the Christian is not, I can do this, or I believe in myself, but it's God can do this, and I believe in Him. 
See, Jesus faced all of these trials, the trials of care, the trials of control, the trial of character, so that you and I would understand that when we are faced with only these things in our lives, we can trust in a Savior God. This is our constant battle. If you are a Christian here in this life, you know what it's like. God does not bring trials in your life to harm you. He did not put his son into the desert to harm him, but actually to test him and to provide an example for you and I one day to benefit from. And in the same way you and I suffer, we struggle through the trials in our lives so that we might benefit others as they look to our faith in God and are encouraged and imitate us as we imitate Jesus. And also so we might comfort others as they go through trial. You know, when the temptations in life come, we are to fight as Jesus did. Say it is written. Learn to cherish and love God's word and stand on it. You realize that Jesus was once a baby and that he actually had to learn how to talk and to think and to read the Bible? Don't just think it was all in his head. Jesus obviously read the Bible. He took great amounts of time, even in his ministry, to go and pray. Jesus must have meditated on the book of Deuteronomy in his personal devotional life, so much so that he realized he was the true Israel and that God's promises could be true. You don't see him thumbing through the Bible when Satan attacks him saying, well, there's a Bible verse that would help me right now. He just knows it and he answers. And he got that because he meditated on God's word. The law of God was on his lips and in his heart. That's the example he paints for us. You can read your Bible. You have a Bible. God has given you a sound mind. And he has given you a story about himself to say that in your deepest trials, will you follow the Son of Man, the Son of God himself, who fought just like any one of us, and know that if you fight in the way that he fights, God will give you success. And that your trials that threaten to crush you and overwhelm you will not drown you, but result in your strengthening your faith. You know, brothers and sisters, my urge to you is that God has put you in the circumstances you're in right now for a specific reason not to kill you, but to teach you to love him and to trust him. You know, if you're not a Christian here today, my challenge to you is, do you know that? Do you know that you don't provide for yourself and that God actually cares for you? Do you know that you're not actually in control over your own life and that God is? Do you know that ultimately the character that you think that you should have is not up to you to decide, but the character and the standard that God has for every single human being is what's real? Would you turn your life over to him and live under his care, his authority, and also to emulate his character. God wants you to relinquish control over your life, and he offers you the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of a new life with him. Don't believe everything that the North American individualistic culture tries to teach us. But believe what the Bible has to say about Jesus, a Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. The God that we serve is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the question for us is, Will we trust him in it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. And you care for us, even God, when we are unappreciative. You free us, God, from the anxiety of trying to care for ourselves and to seize control over our own lives, oh God, or to have to compromise, God, our integrity just to make it work in this world. Father, I thank you, oh God, that you've given us rock-solid promises that we can live on. And I ask, O oh God, that you would make these truths here in the Scripture real to our hearts, and that we would choose today to simply trust you and to love you based on who you are and what you have already done for us in saving us from our sins. Father, we love you because you first loved us. So, Father, we honor the holy name of Jesus and give you the highest praise. In Jesus' name, amen.